gets so dark up here? All right, Ryan, do your worst. <laughs> I'm working on doing my worst. I can't actually, I can't actually see much up here, so it's so dark. Hey, so um, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11, please. I love worshiping with you all. The musical talent goes so deep in this room, I feel like I'm the only one who can't just like shred it on some musical instrument. Unbelievable. Hebrews 11, look it up in your index in the front. Remember, I gave you permission earlier on. Don't worry about it. We, uh, can, we, I didn't hear that, so it's probably better. Uh, yeah, bless you. Uh, last night we uh, finished talking about how we participate in God's story of redemption, how we run the race, it's by faith. For the next few nights, I want to talk about what faith is. I want to tell you stories of people who've walked in faith. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. So let's dive in. Hebrews 11, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 tonight. Two of the or three of these verses are familiar. Um, I would bet you maybe haven't studied the other three or four very much at all. Kind of excited about doing that. It's pretty amazing stuff. Let's read God's word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God has taken him up. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's seek God in prayer. Jesus, would you be with us by your spirit? We need you tonight. Uh, we need you tonight maybe more than in the past as... Uh, we're going to talk about some deep things, some intense things. Jesus, be present. May we who earnestly seek you, which I haven't talked to anybody this whole uh, week so far that isn't, would you, would you meet us, would you reward us with your blessing and your mercy? In your precious name, Jesus, amen. If we're supposed to be running with our eyes fixed on Jesus, and if Jesus holds the key to our inheritance, which is our reward, we should definitely know how to run in such a way as to please God. If God is the one, if Christ is the one who is at the end, whose face is at the finish line, who is in the crowd, which is the cloud, remember, in the Colosseum, as an analogy, cheering us on, if he is our reward, would you not want to know how to please him? Thankfully, we do know. The word that this text uses over and over again is the word commendation. And whoever in this room attends public school was sweating the whole time because they have no idea what that word means. They just, it's beyond their vocabulary. They just can't do it. They're Googling, they're Googling it. They're like, oh my God, I don't know what that means. Comment, hey, picked the homeschoolers last night, public schools tonight. Private school. I got a lot of material on private school, so. <laughs> Commendation. Commendation means praise. It means to be given praise, to give praise. This text says that 
God praises those who have faith in him. Very strange, in a sense, very weird. We don't talk like that often. There is a way to run the race so as to receive the praise of God. I want to know what that looks like. I don't know about you. That's the story of Abel and Enoch. I want the applause of the eternal almighty God. It's so easy, though, instead for us to live for the applause and the praise of other people. Tell me I'm not the only one in this room that just... just wants wants to be liked more than you would dare to say out loud. I just had, I was just texting a friend last week. Uh, I have to do this week of training for my job. I'm flying in a day early to ride mountain bikes with him and some of his buddies. And I have to borrow a mountain bike. And uh, the bike that my friend is trying to borrow from his friend is like super special, carbon fiber, expensive, whatever. And if you have some favorite toy, some favorite, you know, guitar, whatever, toy, bike, car, thing... You know what it's like. You don't want anybody else to borrow that. So my friend texted me and he said, you know what? Before I ask my friend, put my neck out there for you to borrow his bike, why don't you go ahead and give me your, your, uh, your resume, your, your bike resume, so to convince him you can handle it. I, I could not tell you how pleased I was to do that. <laughs> Here's how awesome I am. You know, the text I kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I even had his permission. I loved it. You're the same way. You love to do stuff you're competent at because you want other people to praise you. Don't we want the praise of Christ instead? Our sin nature constantly fights against us in that way, telling us that what I see right in front of me is what will please me. Others around me will please me. But what Abel and Enoch lived for was the pleasure of the praise of God instead. Faith in Christ receives the praise of God. Faith in Christ receives the praise of God. I don't know how many times I've said the word faith in the last three days and everybody else is teaching. What is faith, right? This is the classic thing. We're not going to spend a ton of time here. Hebrews 11 defines faith for us. Faith is two things. It is assurance and it is conviction. Assurance in the New Testament Greek is confidence. It is the trust fall. You don't actually have confidence, maybe, in the people below you. But you have confidence and you have hope because you've seen them catch another person or two. So you're a little shaky, okay? You're a little nervous when you lean back, your stomach still falls, right? But there's a certain type of confidence that you have and a hope that you have based on the fact that previously, at least a couple times, the person before you has been caught. We Faith in God is confidence and a hope that is not hypothetical. It's not a hope and a wishful confidence that you might win the lottery. It is a confidence and a hope based on fact. And the fact spiritually is the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ Jesus himself. That is our hope. That's our assurance. Faith is confidence in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Confidence in that. And it's conviction. Conviction is something that is a a belief so deep in your core that it shapes your action. Faith is, again, 
the trust fall. You have this core belief. Again, maybe it's shaky. But you believed it enough that it shaped your action, which was to be crazy and fall off backwards blind six feet up in the air. That's faith. That's why we've been doing trust falls since 1962 when some guy invented it to teach about faith in America. That's what we do. It's camp. I don't know. It always happens at camp. Faith is confidence. Faith is conviction. Faith is taking hold of something that is absolutely guaranteed and, 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 and having it shape your life. Confidence and conviction. Faith is, at times, a white-knuckle grasp on Christ and his work, on what the scripture says. Faith itself is an epic journey, as we've been talking about. So let's talk about Abel and Enoch. Abel and Enoch pleased God by their faith. We need to read the story of Abel and Enoch because it is too unstudied. So I want you to go left in your Bibles to Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible. Even I can find this without looking in the front. Genesis 4, first book of the Bible. Genesis 4, I'm going to read 1 through 16-ish, I think. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Actually, a better deal is to go with the literal Hebrew in there. Please tell me you have a note. That's actually not a really good translation because it sounds like he's earning his salvation. The literal Hebrew says, will there not be a lifting up? And that's where it ends. Will your face not lift up? Again is the point. And if you do not do well, verse 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Why am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now, God says to Cain, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground. From you, and from me, from you, I'm sorry, my face shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Well, tough luck, sucker. Who do you think, what, what did you just do to somebody? Golly. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Incredible. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away in the presence of the Lord. Sorry, from the presence of the Lord. I'm telling you, you really can't see up here. And settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Abel and his brother Cain were the first children to be born in the world. They were born under the curse of sin, unlike their parents, right? Born in, in paradise and awesomeness, 
Uh, Cain was the older, Abel the younger. Cain was a farmer, overalls, no shirt underneath, straw hat, straw in his mouth, barefoot. Abel was the rancher, boots, chaps, spurs, hat, handlebar mustache, smoked clearly, right? Wranglers. Just a bad dude, yeah. Carried a rifle. Always had the ladies. Man, the younger brother gets all the ladies. That's no wonder. Anyway, what are we talking about? And at some point in history, we don't have this written down, but at some point in history, in the lives of these people, God revealed to them what was an acceptable sacrifice. And it's the same acceptable sacrifice we read in the rest of the books of Moses, Leviticus, Exodus. God wants an animal, a firstborn, a pure animal, and the best parts of the animal. The fat portions. You're like, oh my God, that's so gross. That's like the worst part. If you eat that, you'll die. Right, as in America. I don't know. That's what we believe in America. I don't know. It's what God wanted. Okay, it was different back then. Abel did this. And he did this faithfully, the sacrifice of blood and the animal, the finest part that God required. Abel just did it. But Cain, Abel's brother, he was really angry because he didn't get the ladies. (laughs) Abel's brother brought some veggies to God. Okay, there's nothing wrong with veggies. There's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian if you want to starve to death. Um... (laughs) Actually, vegan's the worst, so hard to eat. Anyway, nothing wrong with it, seriously, whatsoever. This is, not a, this is not about that. It's just that God asked for an animal. That's just what he asked for. I don't know why he did. He could have chosen vegetables and other stuff, and that's fine. But God asked for the animal, the blood and the fat. He asked for the best of the best as a sacrifice. Cain decided he'd give God the best of the rest. God didn't go for it. I don't know why. I don't know why he did it. The scripture doesn't say. But what we do know is that Cain had an attitude problem. His attitude walked in the room about a minute before he did. It was cheaper and easier and more pleasing to Cain for Cain to offer up just what he had in front of him, what he knew, what he was most familiar with. Cain gave to God what Cain wanted to give to God. And God rejected Cain. And Cain got very angry to understate it. The key to understanding Cain is that he got angry when God rejected his offering. The key to understanding God is God's reaction to Cain. And if you look at it carefully, stay camped in Genesis, it might strike you as something that's unexpected. God asked Cain three questions before he told him anything. God came to Cain questioning, why? Why did you do that? Why is your face fall? Why are you angry? God did not slay him in judgment. He did not punish Cain. I want you to sit there for a second. Cain had the only thing. God was just like, okay, follow me in this one thing, just like his parents. One thing. Please don't eat the fruit of this one tree. You've got the whole rest of the world. They couldn't handle it. 
Cain, he, he, he tells Cain and Abel and, 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 and Adam and Eve, just do this one thing. Sacrifice to me the best of your firstborn animal. Cain couldn't handle that one thing. He ought to be dead. What does God do? Why are you angry? Those are not questions of judge. God is trying to draw Cain out. He approaches Cain, the first murderer, with grace and love and kindness and tenderness, with a fatherly spirit of correction and kindness. The gospel is preached to sinners from the beginning of Scripture. This is who God is. We're like Cain. We get angry the instant we don't get what we want from God. Or God doesn't take what we give to him. But God is not like that. You know what Cain's problem was? His ultimate problem? He became a cynic. When the scripture says his face fell, it does not mean that he pouted. It means that he stopped looking at God and started to look only to himself. He became, at that moment, a cynic. A cynic is not someone who has questions that he or she might want to ask of God, things that you don't understand. A cynic is not somebody who has doubts about what God has said, about what God has done, about what's written in the Bible, about what I'm supposed to do. A cynic is someone who has turned away from God and doesn't look at him anymore at all. Many of you have serious doubts, or at least big questions about the Bible, about your life, about how it fits into that, about Christianity, about your own faith, about why God has allowed certain things in your life. Did you know that God is a God who engages and answers doubts? God is not a God to shut you down. He's not a God to strike you in judgment just because you don't understand something or because you're struggling with something. He doesn't do that. God engages the struggler, if you keep reading, we don't have time to do it, but just look to the rest of the text later and how many more questions did God ask Cain? God came to Cain with questions. He's trying to draw him out. He's trying to engage him. He's trying to bring him to himself, and it's Cain that shuts it down. It's Cain that refuses to look to Christ. The first person to lose the race is the cynic. Not the doubter, not the person with questions, but the one who refuses to look at Christ, to look at his God, to look at her God, expecting answers, expecting help. Not only did God engage his doubts, he gave him the tools needed to answer them. God, God told him, he said, he, he said, look, will your face not be lifted up to me again and you'll feel better and we'll be okay? And you'll know what it's like to live with me if you just, just this one thing. <laughs> if you just believe me. It wasn't so much the performance of it. God was like, he could have picked anything. The point was just to believe. 
Cain refused to have simple faith just to simply do what God said. He went all the trouble to make a sacrifice. I mean, you know, he's, just, he's like, went all the way. I mean, I just, it, it makes no sense. And then God not only did that, he told him what was going on behind the scenes. He gave him the whole truth. He withheld nothing. He said, look, Cain, there's more going on here that you may not know about. Sin is out to kill you. It's crouching at your door. The scariest thing you could possibly imagine as soon as you leave your place of safety, your front door. I mean, you can imagine like a lion like crouching and ready, you know. He says, its desire is for you. It wants to annihilate you. This is what's going on, Cain. Do you see? I'm the remedy for that. Look to me. Look to me. Look to me. Cain will have none of it. Doubts do not make you a cynic. Problems, questions do not mean that God, that, that God has shut you down. You just need to know that. Remember Thomas. You know, Tom, the doubting Thomas. I hope they struck that from like titling that in the Bible now. It's, it's like some horrible thing, you know. Thomas maybe is like the first intellectual Christian, if you will, the first scientific uh, Christian. Not really. They were all like that. Everybody had seen the evidence except for Thomas. Thomas, for some reason, was not there when, when, when Christ appeared to his disciples and showed everybody else his hands, his feet aside. Thomas said, I won't believe until I touch his hands, his feet aside. And what did Jesus do? Strike him dead? Call him out in front of everybody? No. He gave him like personal, you know, personal, he was the only one who was allowed just backstage access to Jesus and everybody else had to sit there. Jesus didn't shut him down. He engaged his doubts. A cynic is someone who's already stopped looking at God and therefore can't hear him speak anyway. Is that you? It makes no sense that Cain should kill his brother if you think about it. Think about what's really going on. Who is... Abel had nothing to do with Cain whatsoever. Who is Cain mad at? Yeah. You know who Cain wanted to kill? Cain wanted to kill God. He couldn't get to him. He killed Abel instead. That's how ugly sin is. Sin, you th- oh my, th- that sounds horrible. This is what the Bible tells us about a heart of sin. A heart that turns away from God. We are in a murderous war, Ephesians and Romans say, against God. We're enemies of God. The murderous heart of sin is wanting to kill God. Cain was overcome. Sin blinds us from God's mercy and forgiveness. Cain could not see it. But faith, on the other hand, simple faith. A conviction and a confidence in the grace and Christ, I mean the grace and mercy of Christ, faith, conviction and confidence in what Christ has done, seeks just to look at God. Just to look at Him. And it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Abel simply believed what God told him. Cain did the opposite. Let's talk a little more about Abel. Some strange stuff going on here. Go back to Hebrews. Oh, man, I lost my place. I may never find Hebrews again. Oh, my marker. Maybe, oh, my marker's in here. Whew. Lord, had mercy on me at this moment. Go back to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 says a strange thing. Yeah. 
the blood of Abel still speaks. You know, back to Harry Potter land, you know, divinations and potions class. What's going on here? Abel's faith still speaks, though he is dead and his blood's put on the ground, for two reasons. First, maybe this is the most important one, I don't know. It is the, an extraordinarily simple and clear expression of righteousness through faith alone. Abel just believed God. And what does verse 4 say about it? I think it's verse 4. God commended him as righteous. Praised him. Called him out as being righteous. He just believed. And just did it. The second way that Abel's faith still speaks is that the blood of Abel spilled and God's reaction to that murder is linked to Christ. This is incredible. I don't know if you knew this or not. Hebrews 12, 24, the next chapter later on, says this. The sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What in the world's going on there? Right? The end of the story of Cain and Abel, as we read, is that God judged Cain. He took away his reason for existing. He took away his career. Then he exiled him from his family and his home. And he made him to be a wandering exile labeled murderer for the rest of his entire life. I wish we had more time to go in this. But even then, God had mercy on him. Did you say, if Cain, if anybody touches Cain, vengeance sevenfold, Cain was a murderer. God's grace is unbelievable. It's, we could spend hours unpacking that. We're not because we're talking about Abel now. God cursed the ground. Cain became your worst nightmare of what might ever happen to you in your life. Horrible. And God says about Abel's blood in Genesis 4.10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Okay, again, a little creepy, a little weird, right? But what God is saying is that the injustice that happened there, cried out to God for a remedy, for justice. The first massive injustice on this side of the garden cried out to God for justice. And God heard. But there's another who spilled his blood on the ground and that blood speaks a better word than just mere justice and judgment. The blood of Christ not only cries out against the injustice of sin, it cries out for the forgiveness of sin and that God would have mercy on sinners. It cries out with hope for the resurrection and life everlasting. That's a much better word than the blood 
of injustice that Abel spilled. You might ask, however, why God allowed Abel to die so gruesomely and so young and so unjustly to begin with. If God was so pleased with Abel, how in the world could he allow him to suffer? If you aren't asking that about Abel, you might be asking that about someone close to you. If you're not asking that about someone close to you, you might be asking that about yourself. God, I'm being faithful. What's the deal with all this misery that you have me in? God, I've been praying for three years that you would heal this person I love from their disease. God, what's going on? Why are you allowing this? God seems to be letting you suffer. We read last night from 1 Peter 3, 4-7 that part of enduring the race of faith is enduring suffering. Remember he says you, you, you'll run the race with endurance and, and, and with joy and you may be tested for a time so that your genuine faith might be shown forth like gold tested by fire. God will test your faith. You will suffer. Your Christian loved ones will suffer. Christ promised us this. He said, you follow me, you're going to take up your cross. There has not ever been a Christian that has lived that has not suffered. Not ever. Many, most, have suffered deeply. And there have been, you know, people who have written hymns that we still sing that were so depressed they committed suicide. How, how you know, there have been people who have, you know, died young unjustly, died in car accidents. I can give you example after example of students that I have in college. They're 18 to 22. They're young. They haven't done anything. I don't even know what they want to do in their life. And they, and they suffer. Their loved ones die. They get sick. They get cancer. And themselves die. Their finances get taken out from the rug, the, 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 out from under them. One year they have a scholarship, they love their major, they love their community, they love their campus, and inexplicably the next year they're gone, the scholarship is gone, there's no way they can pay for it, they're out, they're gone. Why? They get sick. They don't have the money they need. To get through this, we have to understand one thing very clearly the one thing that Cain misunderstood. You have to understand who the enemy is. The enemy that's causing this is sin and not God. The enemy is sin. This is what God was trying to tell Cain. Cain, you're fighting against this. You're suffering. Your desires are going a different way. You're struggling with this. He says it's sin, crouching, 
at your door, that it might devour you, that it might murder, that it might cause suffering. The enemy is sin and not God. Even if you're a committed Christian in this room, you've likely suffered deeply and even so young. You may have even been abused. You may have been hurt repeatedly by people that love you, supposed to have loved you, supposed to be a safe place for you, and you've suffered at their hands. You've been betrayed by them. Maybe you've been left with no one to love you. You have to know that God hates that. He hates it so much, he slaughtered his son to wipe it all away. You can't hate it any more than that. God hates it. Abel was grossly unjustly murdered by the one who should have loved him, his brother. What was God's reaction? He heard that cry of pain, and he tells us in Hebrews 12, I had that in mind when I went to the cross. Your pain is not wasted. Your pain is not wasted. Because Jesus went to the cross. If Jesus won our race, we said that yesterday, Jesus ran the race ahead of us, that also means he endured suffering ahead of us. Jesus has endured your suffering. I don't know all the ways in which you're suffering. I don't have answers. I don't have answers in neat little boxes and bows to your suffering. I don't have the answers to my own suffering, the suffering in my own family. I don't pretend to have the answering for your suffering. But this you need to know. Jesus suffered to wipe it all away. He will let us be in it for a time. And he says it's to test our faith. There's a lot about this I still don't understand. I'm understanding it more because I've been through it, a lot of it, and I've come out on the other side, and I love Jesus more. And I look to him more every day. Jesus allows us to suffer and tests us to rip the crap out of our hearts, our sinfulness, and, and to show us the brokenness of this world because we want to love the world. But he needs to show us we can't love the world because if we do, it will eat us up. He says, you need to love me. And look at me. Jesus endured the suffering on the cross to redeem your suffering. Christ's blood speaks a more powerful word than any blood we might shed in this life. Now how about Enoch? Some of a letdown after all that. Enoch. What grand story does the Bible have to tell us about Enoch? N nothing. We know nothing about Enoch. Except that he lived for like 365 years, had a son named Methuselah who lived for 900 and some years, which actually at this point in my life sounds horrible. <laughs> and that he didn't die a physical death God took him up into heaven poof into the clouds there one minute 
gone the next. Genesis 5 says, 5.22 says, all we know about Enoch is that Enoch walked with God. That's it. But I think that's the point. That's what faith is. It's, it's walking with God. That's all we need to know. Because that's what faith is. The reward for faith. The, these next few people we're going to look at, you know, these saints have gone before us. What also happens is the writer of Hebrews is telling us more about what the reward is. We said the reward is an inheritance, right? And that inheritance is imperishable, unfading, uh, full of glory and kept in heaven for you. But we learn in Hebrews 11 more about what the reward is, like what it more sort of specifically is. And the reason the writer of Hebrews put Abel and Enoch together, which you've never studied in your life, and guess what? Neither have I till last week and this afternoon, okay? Let's be honest, until about half an hour ago. Why are they together? The most obscure stories in the Bible. Abel and Enoch are linked because one of the amazing rewards for faith at the end of this race is overcoming death. It's resurrection. It's overcoming all the destruction that sin and suffering and pain does to us and the people that we love and to this earth and this creation. Jesus will take it all away in the resurrection and we will get to experience that. We'll get to live it. We will get to live the resurrection. You remember yesterday the graph and the thing and we're living on this timeline, the plot line. You haven't experienced anything in scene one, scene two, and most of scene three, right? Creation, fall, redemption, like all that's kind of in the past. You will experience in your life, in your body, the final scene, scene four. You will live the final scene of the story that God is writing. And it's the resurrection. When every tear is wiped away. All the suffering is gone forever. And we have nothing but the love and mercy and glory and light and life of the Holy Trinity and all his heavenly hosts and all of the saints who have gone before us and will go after us. All of that is given to us. God's gift to you is the resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, would you give us the strength to look to you in our suffering? We're all in different places here in that. Some of us really haven't even known much suffering and not even sure what to do with all this. Others of us have known more suffering than we dare have told anybody today. Jesus, would you give us a vision of you and the strength? Would you give us the strength you promised in your word to give us the strength to run the race? Would you give us the strength just to look to you, just to pray to you? May we not sink into darkness and become sufficient to ourselves. Jesus, we need you to do this. And would you? Amen.